Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast, and thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the episode. Let's find Ephesians chapter number three. Let's stand our feet. We'll dive right in and uh, get right to this prayer of Paul as we continue in this series, Talk Less, Pray More. The guys will continue in this series next week, but I'm going to preach tonight. We look forward on Sunday uh, to having Brother Craig Hartman in the morning service. He'll be preaching for us, and he'll also be fielding question and answer concerning Israel and the ministry of Shalom Ministries. Uh, that will not be broadcasted live. Uh, that will be something that will just be here, and so we're looking forward to having him in the, the morning service as well. Sunday afternoon at 2, um, 2 p.m. Over, uh, over on Stroop Road, uh, we, uh, the Dayton Right to Life is celebrating the end of row. I'll be speaking and praying at that, and so uh, you're welcome to come over to that over on Stroop Road near the Women's Center there and just a time to celebrate uh, this right step in our, our country's history. Let's find Ephesians chapter number 3 and look at verse number 1 to start with. The Bible says, For this cause I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of grace of God, which is given, uh, given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore, to, afore in a few words, whereby when ye read... Uh, ye, uh, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And so right here at the outset, he is kind of opening up what is the mystery of this church age that we are a part of. And then he is going to lead from there after he's really dealt with a lot of theology, a lot of, uh, in chapter number two, especially dealt with the, the matter of our salvation being by faith through grace. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, he leads into a prayer as a segue, if you will, into uh, real the practical living of the Christian life in chapter number four. And so I want us to, to have this in mind. He's in prison. Uh, he's going to be talking about the church and the church age. And in verse number, 14, or verse number 13, he says this, Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you. What tribulations? Verse number one, he's in prison. He's over in Rome and in prison. I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you. That is for the whole cause of the gospel, for the, the ministry of the gospel, especially to the Gentiles, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant unto you, or grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye 
might be all the of God. Now, that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church. This mystery that he's laying out to the Ephesian believers in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, amen and amen. Let's pray and ask God to help us break apart this prayer. Father, we thank you for the prayers of Paul, and we thank you for inspiring them for us, intending that we would read them in this day and that we'd be nourished by them. And I pray that you would nourish us with spiritual food that would help us to live in this day would help us to know how to interact with each other. Lord, we thank you for the good week that you've given to us as a church family together, fellowshipping with one another, encouraging one another. Now, Lord, would you use this prayer to help us to encourage each other spiritually, I pray, even this night, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Thank you for standing. You know, spiritual trials, struggles that happen in our lives, oftentimes we can look at them and uh, they... They are, they're difficult for us to go through, but sometimes we forget that those looking on the suffering and the affliction going on in our lives, it can cause another believer to be even disheartened, uh, to, uh, to have maybe a cloud that, that, that develops above their head, and they, they wonder, is it worth serving Jesus Christ? Is it worth going on? Uh, if, if that's how they're treated or if that's what they experience in their Christian journey, is it worth me going that direction? Is it worth me following them? I want us to remind ourselves as we've been in the book of Acts, the Ephesian believers were very near and dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul. Remember when he's coming back through on his, the last leg of his third missionary journey, he comes back through um, uh, uh, Miletus and he calls the elders down, the pastors down out of Ephesus, and he wanted to encourage them. And we're right in the middle of that, that pastor's conference that he's giving to them. Why did he do that? There was a special connection between Paul and the Ephesian church and, and what God was doing there. And here he is, he is now over in Rome and he's in prison. And I want us to remember that prison in those days weren't, weren't, uh, wasn't a really great experience. Prison was a kind of a difficult experience. They, they, uh, he would have been likely held in, a, in some sort of a, uh, uh, a dungeon of types, an underground sewer, as you see there, let down, uh, down there. It, it was not a, a pleasant and good situation at all. And, and so Paul is in this state of suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he is writing back to these, these believers and he's saying, listen, I, I don't want you to be disheartened at what is going on in my life. I don't want you to be uh, dismayed at what's going on in my life. I don't want you to stall out in your Christian life. I don't want you to stop taking steps forward. I don't want you to stop being bold for the faith. I don't want you to stop because of my afflictions. Sometimes the afflictions or the suffering of others can cause us to be despondent. I think even this week, as many of you are uh, familiar and we're praying for what has happened in Wisconsin, and you can, you can just sense the, the burden of heart upon that family. Though they're responding with much grace and much faith, the Reamer family, certainly, uh, they have days of grief, and those that are around have days of grief, and even our own uh, guys here, Sam and, and, and especially Jonathan, very close, um, close to these uh, to um, Ben, who died and passed away. There's, there's a grief, and there's an affliction that goes on there, and even seeing the trial that that family uh, is going through, sometimes it can cause us to step back and say, well, if that's what it is to serve God, 
If that's what, what it is to follow after Jesus, if a life is cut short in, in the prime, so to speak, and, and that's what it means to follow Jesus, I don't know about that, and, and to become disheartened in the middle of all that. And Paul is saying to these believers, I don't want you to be disheartened. You say, where do you find that? He says that in verse number 13. He says, I don't want you to be faint. I don't want you to be disheartened in the ministry, so I'm going to pray for you. Now, Paul is hundreds of miles away. In fact, he's 700 and some miles away from these believers. He's away from them. He, he can't do anything in that day. He can't send them a text message. He can't give them a phone call. He can't send an email. He can't send a, a care patch, a package quickly. But he could pray, and he chose to do that. And whereas we don't feel very disconnected from anyone in the world at this point, I was watching last night how that Elon Musk continues to throw satellites up into space so much so that they're, they're afraid of, 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 of space debris and, and when these things hit and collide into each other and, and creating all sorts of particles floating around in outer space. And, and, and what is it for? So that there is no area of the world that is without internet. We are so connected in this day. And you think about how those two witnesses will be seen around the world, their death in, in Revelation, how they're, uh, they'll be seen around the world. We can understand that in this day of Internet, but it keeps growing more and more, does it not? We're connected, but Paul wasn't connected in that day, other than prayer. Other than the ability to bow his head before God and say, God, I need you to supernaturally give an uplift to the Ephesian believers because they're hearing about this and they're faint in their mind. I don't want them to be faint in their mind. I want them to go forward for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want them to go on and no matter what you're facing tonight, no matter what someone else is facing, no matter what those are facing up in Wisconsin, uh, the heart of God for us is that we would go on, that we would have a spiritual uplift in this, in this time. And so let's break this apart. Do understand Paul is in prison. He says that in verse number one. He is going to describe to them because the Holy Spirit has given this to him by inspiration what is the church age. God had been working throughout the Old Testament to use Israel as a light to the Gentiles, um, the, um, the book of Isaiah says. They have failed over and over and over again. They put their Messiah on the cross. God gives them the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. They reject him, and God sets them aside. Give me the timeline for a moment. God sets them aside for a moment, and he, he, he gives us what is this church age, as Paul talks about here, this dispensation of grace, this church age that we're in. And I want you to understand it as a parenthesis in time. God is not set aside. God is not, or I should say, God is not uh, forsaken Israel. He is not done with Israel. He will continue to work with them in the tribulation. But for right now, we are in this church age. The church was empowered at Pentecost. And, and God is working through the church to bring the world to himself. He's working through us. Who's the church? Who's the church? We are right? And he's working in our lives and through our lives and in our, in our lives by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. He's working right now until the trumpet sounds and he snatches the church away and then resumes his work and his focus upon Israel. We are in this church age and Paul is announcing that in verse number, in verse number five and six that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Only God himself could unite such factions in that world of that day, the Jew and the Gentile together in one body, the church, Christ's body, all those who place faith on 
on Jesus Christ for salvation. This church there at Ephesus, this gathering, these assemblies, of the, these local expressions of the body of Christ, they had the potential to be faint in their heart. Paul didn't want to, and he's praying for them in specific. He's going to dive much further into on the practical matters of the church in chapter number four. He's going to talk about how it's gifted and how the church uh, has leaders that uh, are part of the gifting. We heard a bit, little bit about that on Sunday night and how that the, um, the Lord ha- intends that the church be what helps us not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And inside the church, we're, we're, uh, we're growing up as the truth is spoken in love and we are working together as we operate with our gifts and we we serve one another in love. It's so amazing what God was breaking open there. But all that to say, Paul is praying for this church. I don't want you to be faint. I want you to be able to do all that God wants you to do. I don't want you to be disheartened in any way by the suffering that I'm going through. So what does Paul do? He prays. He prays. Before he gets into practically applying the doctrine, how they should walk worthy, chapter 4 and verse number 1, worthy of their vocation, worthy of their calling, He prays. What a segue between all the doctrine that he lays out in chapters 1 through 3 to the practical application of that doctrine in chapter 4 through 6. What a segue. He bows his knee before God and says, God, I want you to enable these believers. My heart is that they're not faint in their hearts, but that they're enabled to do the work that you want them to do. And so notice the prompt to prayer that Paul has. It is for this cause, verse number 14, for this cause I bow my knees. What's the cause? I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you. For you. I'm suffering for the sake of the gospel. I ask this of God. I'm I'm asking this uh, on your behalf before God. This is my desire. I don't want you to faint. Notice he says that ye faint not. that, That you as believers as a part of the family of God, as a part of the church, that you don't faint, that you would not be disheartened. One man said it this way, rather than being discouraged by his troubles, Paul says, in effect, that they should be proud that he was counted worthy to suffer for the Lord Jesus. They should rejoice to think of the benefit of his tribulations to them and to other Gentiles. They should see his current imprisonment as glory, Not a disgrace. Not a disgrace. Paul said in Timothy that there were those that were ashamed of his bonds. And he told Timothy, I don't want you to be ashamed of my bonds. Why? Because I'm doing this for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. I'm not suffering as an evildoer. I'm suffering as a follower of Jesus Christ. And in this moment, Paul could have been very focused on himself, but he was not. He was focused on the needs of the Ephesian believers hundreds of miles away. I desire that they would not be faint in their hearts, that they would not be disheartened. I say to all of us, when we're going through trials and when we're going through suffering and when we're going through affliction, the need to be like the Apostle Paul and have on our heart the affliction of others or the, the, spiritual, the spiritual condition of others. He was praying, Lord, I don't want them to be disheartened. I don't want them to faint. And while he was in the midst of suffering, he was concerned about others. It reminds me of John 19 and verse number 27. Then saith he to his disciple, Behold thy mother. Well, Jesus was on the cross. He says to John, I want you to to take care of my mom. 
Take her as your own mom, and I want you to care for her. And I'm reminded that even when Jesus was on the cross, he not only was concerned for his own mother, but he was concerned for the soldiers who put him there. He was concerned for the thief that was right next to him. He was concerned for others. Paul demonstrates that. And even in Philippians, he challenges the Philippian believers, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others and demonstrates that right in this passage of Scripture. He prays for the Ephesian believers when he's the one in prison. The song goes, Lord, let me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. You know, when we're going through trial and when we're going through affliction and suffering, it's in those moments that we can shine brightly for Jesus Christ and let the fragrance of Christ come off. And if you're like me, there's times that I've gone through trials and I've not been a very good reflection. I'm sure thankful for illustrations like the Apostle Paul here. He's in the midst of a trial and he's praying. I want to be like that, don't you? I want to be like that. And that takes the grace of God, doesn't it? It really does. Paul was prompted in his prayer because he had this burden. I don't want them to faint. I don't want them to faint. Do you care about one another in that way? I don't want them to be disheartened. I don't want them, the wind to be out of their sails. I, I, wa I want to pray for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that as they see trials or they go through trials, that they, they would not faint. Well, what a great prayer. What a great prayer. What a great prompting to prayer of this burden that he has. But I don't think that we should miss something else that goes on here in verse number 14. Would you look at it with me? For this cause, and say the next words with me. For this cause, I bow my knees. One more time. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you notice not just a prompt of prayer, but also the posture of his prayer? Well, how did Paul even posture himself before his heavenly Father? He says, I bow my knees. Now, we can get away from that because we think it's too formalistic. Uh, it's, just a, it's just something that you know, we talk about in Scripture and they do in formal places. I bow my knees, but there is something about the posture that we put our, ourselves physically into when we come to God. Linsky says the bodily attitude during prayer is important. Why? For it reflects the soul's attitude towards God. Even as we see the publican and the Pharisee come to, come to pray at the temple, uh, one stood and, and, and would not even put his nose to the ground, but put his face towards heaven and, and says, I thank my God that I'm not like this publican. And the publican's there bowing himself and wouldn't even so much look up into heaven. And the Bible says, be merciful. He says, be merciful unto me, Lord, a, a sinner. What the posture of him his posture really noted or illustrated the, the posture of his heart, humility. And here Paul bows his knees. He says, for this cause I bow my knees. Where? In prison. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he bows before the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is uh, an oft-repeated description of the Father. 
on, in, in Paul's epistles. He, he seemed to really like saying this. Ephesians 1 and verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord that he is the one who, who begot to us. Uh, John 3 and verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He bowed before this one who sent his Son to be our Savior, to be the propitiation of our sin, to be the substitute for our sin. He bowed before him as the creator of all that is. He says, before of whom, the verse number 15, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And there's much that could be unpacked there, but suffice it to say that he bowed before the one who is the reason that everything and everyone exists. Now, Paul was not saying he was not saying here in verse number 15 that we are all the children of God. That is something that the universalist say, uh, says, and lest you think that that does not, not around even this day that I met and talked with someone who claims to be a universalist and just to understand that that is a common thought. It, it, it filters into our culture. We're all the children of God, right? No, Paul's not saying that. He's not saying that at all. But he is, he is saying that we all owe our existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is in that way, uh, the creator of all that is. And when we consider who God is, when we stop and consider who God is, it is not hard for us to bow ourselves before him. And I believe that we are going to, when we're in his presence, we'll not be cocky in his presence, we'll not be flippant in his presence. The Bible talks about every knee is going to bow. Every knee's going to bow. Paul bowed before him, prayed to him with awe, with wonder at who he was. Paul was prompted to pray because he was burdened for the Ephesian believers. He was burdened for the church. He was burdened that ye faint not, that the, the children of God, those that had placed faith in Christ, um, that they would not faint. He bowed before God with reverence. His posture was reverent and humble. But now I want us to notice really the core of the prayer. And I want us to notice Paul's precision in this prayer because he does not just pray a passing prayer like, oh Lord, bless the Ephesian believers and I pray that you just keep them out of trouble and that you be with them and and uh, guide, and, uh, guide and lead and, and direct in every way. Amen. He, he doesn't pray a passing prayer. He's very precise in his prayer. And that's one of the reasons why it's helpful for us to go through the prayers of Paul because they are inspired scripture. They're given to us. They're profitable for our learning. They're profitable for our instruction. And here's a prayer list that Paul prays for other believers. Now, if Paul prayed it for other believers and the Holy Spirit put it in the Bible, can we pray it for one another? Should we? Yeah, and so we can write down right now, we can write down, this, this ought to help our prayer life. This ought to help my prayer life for, as I pray for you. This ought to help your prayer life as you pray for one another, and I sure hope that as you pray for me, that it'll help your prayer life towards me, and, and vice versa, that we all grow in prayer tonight just by looking at these, at these specific, precise prayers that the Apostle Paul has. So notice, we pray this often, and, and in verse number 16, his prayer request to God was that he would grant you, the Ephesian believers, and you here at Grace Baptist Church, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might in the inner man. With might by his spirit in the inner man. And so let's notice that he's praying for the strength of Christ to empower them internally. 
not just physical strength. He's not praying for physical strength here. He's praying for those that may be handicapped. He's praying for those that might have some other, maybe a learning disability. He's praying for everyone within the church there, all those that had called upon the Lord. He's praying that they would be strengthened with the strength of Christ by His Spirit inside, in their heart, in the core of their being, inside of who they, uh, who they are. Strengthened to become strong, to overcome resistance. I'm praying that they would be strong against the wiles of the devil. I'm, I'm praying that they would become strong against the, the dart of comparison and the dart of doubt that Satan's going to throw at them. I'm praying that they would be strong so that they might overcome, that they might have God's power to overcome. Later on in chapter number 6, what's he going to do? He's going to give the armor of God. He's going to say, when you put on the, when you take you the shield of faith, you're going to be able to stand against every wile of the devil, every scheme of Satan. God, I'm praying that you would help them to be able to stand in that evil day. I'm praying that they would be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He's praying specifically for their strength, their spiritual strength. We can pray for one another in that way, for spiritual strength. You can take the armor of God in chapter number, uh, chapter number 6, starting in verse number 10. You can take the armor of God and pray for one another. Lord, I pray that they would be strong in you. That they be strong in the knowledge of you. That they be strong in the realization that they are in a, a physical or a spiritual battle that does affect us um, uh, physically. I'm praying that you would help them to realize that their battle is not with somebody else and with a, a person, but I'm praying that you would help them to be strong in the realization that they are fighting a spiritual battle in their wars against principalities and powers and, and, and wickedness in high places. Pray through. That's what he's praying. Praying that they would be strong so that they might overcome resistance. But he wasn't just praying for their strength. He was also praying that the life of Christ would be a reality in them. Notice in verse number 17. Let's read it out loud together. Good and loud here tonight. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. By faith. That Christ may dwell. The idea of residing or lodging. Um, every once in a while you might get a critter that lodges in your house. I remember when we bought our our first house, we had some raccoons that had taken up residence in the house, and it, it seemed that they were, they were very happy there. Um, they stayed there, and it, it took a while to get them out. They had chewed holes in the roof, and uh, they had done all sorts of things. We got critter control out. It was hard to get them out. They had taken up residence. It's like they owned the place. One night, I remember, we were in bed, and, and they were fighting in the ceiling above our bedroom. And they were going through, and they somehow would go from our, above our ceiling down and get above the porch ceiling. How they routed themselves all through the house, I don't know. We finally got rid of them, and it was a, a very nice day. But they dwelt in our house. Now, that's a poor illustration for uh, Christ dwelling, and we, it's a very positive thing. Just think of the dwelling, right? Um, I remember going to my grandma's house in Illinois. Uh, she was a well-to-do woman had kind of a, uh, just a very uh, big aura about her. When you came uh, to her house, she welcomed you. She, uh, she smiled. It was a big deal when you came. Um, it, it, she was often cooking in, the, in her kitchen. 
which was a, a, a classic 1980s kitchen, dark wood all over, carpet on the floors. Do you remember those days? Carpet on the floors in a kitchen, carpet in the bathrooms, you know how that, that was. But she was cooking in there, and she made a big deal about cooking, and the only thing I never really liked were her Polish um, uh, sausages, and uh, those were hot, and um, at, uh, at, the, uh, at the threat of being in trouble, I would eat those things um, because you ate, in those days, you ate what was put in front of you, amen, right? And uh, anyway, but I just remember going to her house and her hugs, her laugh, her sitting down and visiting. Let's sit down and just visit for a little while. She was just a, a kind of a, a larger-than-life lady. But I remember uh, with my wife traveling on down I-70 or over I-70 and up 65 trying to make it up to Illinois before she died, and we didn't ultimately make it. Um, but coming into the house where the family was, and everyone else was there, but you know my grandma wasn't there. And there was something different in the house. She was no longer dwelling there. It wasn't quite the same happy place. The house was still there, but she wasn't dwelling there. The laughter, her laughter that she would kind of stir up wasn't there. And, and I'm just thinking about the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Now, Paul is not praying for the presence of, of the Lord to come into their lives. That already was settled at salvation, amen? By the Holy Spirit coming to dwell, the presence of Jesus Christ coming into their lives. So he wasn't praying for that, but he was praying that the reality, the, pres um, the presence of Christ would be there, that Christ's heart would be there, that Christ's attitude would be there, that Christ's smile would be there, that Christ's uh, compassion would be there, that the reality of Jesus Christ would be in the lives of the Ephesian believers. And even though they were burdened about Paul, he was praying, I want your presence to be in their life so much so that whenever people come in contact with them, when other people come in contact out in the, out in the workplace and out in the marketplace, that they would feel as if they're coming in, in contact with very Christ. That, that, that Christ was so dwelling and inhabiting them that, that it, to talk and to fellowship with them was like as if you were fellowshipping with Christ. That was his prayer. One author says dwell refers not to the beginning of Christ and dwelling at the moment of salvation. Instead, it denotes that, that the desire that Christ may literally be at home in, that is, at the very center of or deeply rooted in the believer's lives, they are to let Christ become the dominating factor in their attitudes and in their conduct. So that as people come in contact with them, the essence of Christ rubs off. The essence of Christ is smelled, it's seen, it's felt, it's heard, it's, it's tasted. This is not a question of whether Christ is in the believer, whether he is there, but rather of his feeling that he is there, that he is allowed to, to have free course, that he's not restricted in any way. His life is able to come out and be seen in our lives. And so he's praying that for them. He's praying that his presence would be a reality in their life. In John 15 and verse number 5, Jesus giving the, uh, uh, the story of the, the vine and, 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 and how we're to abide in him. He says, I am the vine and ye are the branches. Now notice, he that abideth in me. All right, we have that picture. He that continues lives in me. But then he goes on to say, and I in him. And I in him, the same, bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So Jesus doesn't just tell us to abide in him, 
But he says, let me abide in you. Let my life be a reality in you. And when that's happening, you will bear much fruit. You'll bear joy. You'll bear love. You'll bear long-suffering. You'll bear all these fruits of the Spirit. They will be there. You'll bear souls. Why? Because I'm living in you. My life is animating you. And Paul's praying that for them. Shouldn't we pray that for one another? That the life of Christ, the reality of Christ, would be, be alive and well, dwelling and happening every believer shouldn't we be praying that yes so you see this is a pretty precise prayer this isn't just a passing dinner prayer this is a precise prayer let's move on he goes in verse number 17 that ye being rooted and grounded in what all right one is looking at the bible that ye being rooted and grounded in what very good you're all together tonight we're still awake, may be able to comprehend with all the saints breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. And so this is all focused on their grasping of the love of Christ. Now, that's a pretty big subject, is it not? It's a pretty big subject. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's saying, I want them, Father, would you help them to grasp or comprehend the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for them? Why? Because when you and I can grasp the love of Jesus Christ for us, all disheartedness will fade away. Now, friends, this is a conviction to me and, and probably to you as well, but how many times are we disheartened in the midst of trial or looking at other people's trials just because we got our eyes off of Jesus? And here he's praying, Father, I want them to be able to grasp your love and, and that by them grasping your love for them, Christ's love for them, they're going to be invigorated. They're going to realize it's not a losing battle. It, this isn't something that we should just give up on. When they grasp the fact that your love is so loyal, and as I thought about this, the hymn comes to mind, O love that will not let me go. Mm. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And he's praying, Lord, help them to realize how big your love is for them. He goes on to even talk about measuring the love. The, the, as uh, another author talks about, the, the, he says, that I, I want them to comprehend, I want them to grasp the width of the love that, that is the worldwide, for God so loved the world. It's the worldwide. It's, it's, it's not restricted to anybody. We don't believe in a limited atonement, amen? Right? We believe that his love is wide for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, whosoever will may come. And so it's, it's wide, it's, it's extravagant love. And he says, I want them to also know the length of it. It's forever. It doesn't ever end. There, there's no end to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it goes on and on and on. The depth of his love, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2 and verse number 8. Even the death of the cross he gave himself for. And the height is, is heaven itself. It, 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 it is high and far away. I mean, you just cannot measure it. It's immeasurable love. Yes, that they would grasp the love of Christ. I remember one person saying or something to this effect, but one glimpse at the cross is enough to inspire a lifetime of service. 
The fact is we get our eyes off the cross and we forget how much Jesus Christ loves us and we get wearied and faint in our minds just like Paul was afraid of the Philippians doing and and it's getting our eyes back to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that would inspire us. F.B. Myers says there will always be a much horizon before us and behind us. And when we have been gazing on the face of Christ for millenniums, it will be, its beauty will be as fresh and fascinating and fathomless as when we first saw it from the gates of paradise. I mean, there's just no end to the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The hymn writer says, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and what? Love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? That last verse says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Why? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Right? Why was Paul praying that they would grasp the love of God? Because that in and of itself would give an uplift to their lives. It would encourage them. It would take all the disheartenedness away. It was the cure to their disheartenedness. Hebrews 12 and verse number 1. Wherefore, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now notice, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, you being saved and redeemed, amen, who for the joy, that just seems amazing to me, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. What does that do for you and I? The author, we believe Paul, goes on to say, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Why? Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. What is Paul praying for the Ephesian believers? Lord, help them to see your love that was shown abroad at Calvary. Lest they be disheartened, even by my suffering. The answer to our disheartenment, the answer to our discouragement, the answer to our deflation, the answer to our despondency is a good glimpse at the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the love of Christ constraineth us. It constrains us. It moves us on. It helps us on. And we know, like Paul says here, we know we have gotten a good glimpse. We know we have a good grasp when we're able to go through tribulation and trial and endure the affliction for his sake. There's one more part of this prayer. Verse 19, look at it with me. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. It almost seems like this prayer couldn't get more specific and more deep and precise, but it does. And he prays this. I, I, want, I want you as believers to be filled up, to be generously supplied with the fullness of God. Now, that's a pretty big, big request. I'm not sure that I can wrap my mind around the fullness of God. Now, I'm thankful for the, the Spirit of God that dwells within us. When we yield to Him, we have the, as some would call it, the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. We're able to 
produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and have, a, have, a, uh, have the presence of God as, a, as upon our life. And, and, and people might say, the hand of God is upon them, or the presence of God is with them, or God is with them. I think back to the book of Genesis, and really before so much of, of this was uh, revealed in time, uh, understand that Joseph, as a Hebrew governmental prisoner was in the king's prison accused falsely of raping Potiphar's wife he is there and he is he has risen up in in the prison and he is now an assistant or second to the prison guard and he is doing things that the the prison guard would typically only uh, do himself or have those he uh, had those Egyptians that he really trusted do but he has this Hebrew performing jobs and tasks because he sees that God is with him, and he says it over and over. You remember the story, perhaps, as there's two other servants of Pharaoh that are in prison, and they're, they're likely going to lose their heads, the butler and the baker, and, 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 and they have dreams one night, and, and Joseph is able to interpret those dreams with the help of God, and, and, and one is going to be killed, and the other one is not. He's going to be restored to his position, and and so he says that one that's going to be restored to his position, he says, when you go up and see Pharaoh, would you, would you tell him about my situation? Would you let him know about the situation? I've been falsely accused here and I'm in prison. And would you let him know? Well, he forgets until that, that night that Pharaoh has a dream and calls all his men and says, hey, you guys need to interpret this dream. You need to tell me what this dream's all about. And he goes, oh yeah, I had a similar experience in prison. And I bet you, I think that that Joseph Hebrew guy, he could, he could take care of this, um, this situation, that he could answer this, uh, answer this dream, give an interpretation. So he tells the king, calls him out. Pharaoh is surprised and blessed by the fact that, that, that Joseph standing before him does not take uh, credit for this, but he, he, he uh, announces and interprets the dream and, and gives all the credit to God. And, and as, as they're, they're, they're uh, forecasting these seven years of plenty followed by this famine, he, he says, hey, listen, uh, we need somebody to help take these seven plentiful years and we need to, uh, we need to stockpile and we need to uh, set up reserves and we need to uh, set up reserves of, 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 of grain and, and, and other things. I, I sure wish we would set up reserves of fuel in our country and hold on to our reserves of fuel in our country. That was just a passing thought. Not send them to the other countries. That would be really nice. Oh, that we'd have a, someone with the Spirit of God in them that would uh, make sense in these days, right? Um, but anyway, that's a side thought. Um, but he says, I want, someone to, I, I want someone to stockpile. And he says in Genesis 41 and verse 38, And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Now, I don't know if, if this Pharaoh had ever come across someone with the Spirit of God in them. But he recognized it in, in Joseph. And I just have a, 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 a mind to understand that, that the Bible gives us the Old Testament. God gave us the Old Testament to be an example of things. And when we see Joseph's life standing there before a pagan king that knew nothing but sin and debauchery, was a very powerful man, he looked into um, to Joseph's life and he says, the Spirit of God is in him. What was that all about? The fullness of God. It was, it was evident in his life. It wasn't about Joseph. 
Joseph could have asked for anything in that moment. He could have become a very rich man, but he, he saw his humility. He saw the Spirit of God resting upon him. And Paul's prayer was for the Ephesian believers that the fullness of God would be upon him. remember reading Don Sis' autobiography, and he, he talked about coming to grips with the realization that the only way he was going to go forward in his family and in ministry was if he had the fullness of, of the Spirit of God. Paul was praying for the Ephesian believers that they would have the fullness of the Spirit of God, that it would be evident to all around that God was with them, that God was on their life. Yes, this was a grand and expansive prayer, but the answer to this prayer that God would give would be an incredible, incredible spiritual uplift for the Ephesian believers. You talk about just, uh, you talk about just a, a, a uh, the updraft, just kind of being borne up on eagle's wings. Just the the spiritual in, in, infusing of power, the blessing that would come to the Ephesian believers because of this prayer, and the same blessing that awaits your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when you pray according to God's word like here. John Newton said, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. When someone asked a tremendous favor of Napoleon, it was immediately granted because, said Napoleon, and I quote, he honored me by the magnitude of his request. God is honored with the magnitude of our, our requests. And how often we are not like Paul and we do not pray great precise prayers for one another or for ourselves because we, we come to God and we ask these small things, Lord, just bless our day. But he's asking for strength and for the grasping of God's love and for the fullness of the presence of God and that, that Jesus' uh, life would be dwelling in them by faith. What amazing prayers that he was praying for the Apostle Paul. And we end with this, the praise we find in Paul's prayer. Now unto him, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And he's just stepping back and saying, God is able to do this. God is able to do this. And I, I praise him because he's able. Do we see God is sufficient to meet the task? Do we see God as the one who is sufficient to answer these prayers? Paul says he's able to do exceedingly abundantly. He's able to do the extreme things. Yes, he is. He's able to do the extreme things. Call unto me. Say it with me. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Is there anything too hard for God? You know what the rest of that verse says? A 90-year-old lady gets pregnant. That's pretty amazing. Is there anything too hard for God? We're not praying that, by the way, for any uh, older ladies in our church. He's able. In verse number 21, he is to be adored. Unto him be glory in the church. Where's that? In your lives. In the Ephesian lives. Unto him be glory in the church and in your lives and, and how Christ is dwelling in you and giving you the grasp of his love in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So be it, is what he prays in the church, in the lives of every believer, in every generation, throughout all of history and throughout all eternity, I'm praying that Christ would be adored. That's what he was praying. 
One author says it this way, this redeemed community, the church, the blood-washed band, the, the body of Jesus Christ will be an eternal witness to his matchless, marvelous grace. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that's going to be. When we're all standing there in his presence and singing around his throne and bowing down before him and casting our, throne, our, our crowns at his feet, and we're all learning of him throughout all of eternity and serving him in, in the same way, what a matchless show. What a wonderful show, an eternal witness. He is loving. He is great. He is full of grace. He is faithful. He's merciful. Oh, love that will not let me go. Paul is concerned for his fellow heirs in Christ, the Ephesian church. And so he prayed, God, I don't want them to be faint in their hearts. I want them to be energized. I want them to be encouraged. I want them to be in, uh, in, enabled by your spirit in their lives. And he prayed in, in those four prayers. Lord, strengthen them with the power of Christ in their inner man. Lord, would the reality of your life be be real in them? Would it be dwelling in them so that everywhere they go, the essence of Christ is seen and felt, heard, smelt, tasted? Would the love of Christ be grasped in their lives so that they would have power to go on, so they would have inspiration to go on? And would the fullness of God fill them so that those around them see that the Spirit of God is upon them and that who God is and what God is trying to accomplish in the world is in their very inner being. It is very evident, just like Joseph. Lord, I pray this for them so that you might be adored throughout all ages in your church. And that's the prayer of Paul for the Ephesian believers. And I think we ought to just ask the Lord to help us to put this into practice this evening. And so we'll bow our heads and take a moment to pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To learn more about Grace Baptist or how to have eternal life, visit gracekettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.